welcome to the Covenant Experience Podcast. At Covenant, we are growing passionate followers of Jesus Christ who serve all people. If you live in the tri-state area, we welcome you to join us on Sundays at 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. You can find more information about us online at covenantexperience.com or call us at 304-876-2212 with any questions. And now today's message. Great weekend so far. I don't know how many of you have been involved in all the things that have been taking place from Covenant Sports that took place right in this room. A great men's breakfast yesterday morning, the first one of 2024 quarterly to kick off uh, a room full of guys talking about some hard stuff, but some really good stuff. And tonight is Covenant Women. So ladies, right in this room at at 5 p.m., I I hope you'll join us. At this moment, I get the honor of opening God's Word. And so if you join me in 1 John chapter 3, We've been in a series called One Another, simply moving verse by verse through this powerful, powerful letter. You know, Scripture is filled with teaching that reminds us anything that's on the inside eventually is going to present itself on the outside. Anything. Anyway, if I'm trying to hide something, if I'm trying to harbor something, if it, whether it's good or bad, whether it's wonderful or evil, Whatever is on the inside eventually is going to be made plain to the outside. Perhaps the most graphic description of that is in Jesus' words in Matthew 12, 34, where he says, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. In other words, whatever comes out of my mouth tends to expose whatever is in my heart. And eventually that is what's going to happen. And so if my language is filled with profanity or lewdness or uh, all constant cynicism uh, or slander or gossip or those kind of things, that's revealing something very sick down in my heart. Uh, conversely, if there are good things and redemptive things that come, healing things out of my mouth, that too is a reflection of my heart. And I found that's generally true in all areas of life. Several years ago, I was walking in on, on a campus with an academic colleague of mine, and he had started experiencing, at about the age of 70, some weird sensations, kind of a throbbing pain in his neck, dizziness, debilitating headaches. Sometimes it would keep him from coming to class. He had an episode over lunch one day. We all, of course, are surrounding him going, are you okay? And gentlemen, what did he say? I'm fine. Yeah, of course he did. And I don't know if his wife drugged him and put him in the car unconscious, but one, one way or another, she got him to the physician who then diagnosed him with a fairly severe blockage that, as it turns out, could have caused a major cardiac arrest. But here's the thing. Once they treated him, he was better, and then the recovery happened. And I want you to know, earlier, like before that happened, he would walk up a flight of steps and he would be breathing really heavily. All right. After the, the recovery period, he would walk up those steps with me nearly 25 years my senior, and I would think maybe there's something wrong with my heart because I'm breathing a little bit. He's walking up those, that, those steps, and all of a sudden, everything was better. And he told me, he said, Joel, I feel like I've gotten 20 years of my life back. When you're sick on the inside, it shows. But when you've been healed, that shows too, doesn't it? 
It really does. And the same is true spiritually. And we went, went in this series through, in 1 John reading the story of a, of a congregation that's trying to demonstrate unity in the middle of a culture that was horribly divided. That may have some tinge of relevance for us in a 2024 election cycle. But they're also trying to stay together in the face of a Gnostic heresy that threatened to tear them apart. And so they get a letter from an old man in his 80s, an apostle who has served Jesus nearly all of his life, trying to guide them back to the truth that will unite them together. And it's in this section of text that we see the words of Jesus most reflected when he said the following in Mark chapter 12 and verse 30. He said, the most important is this, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no greater commandment than these. Love God, love each other. Jesus taught these two go hand in hand, which means if you don't love God on the inside, that's going to present itself, and people are going to notice. And, and most often, it's going to come out how do you how you treat your neighbor. If you do truly love God, conversely, that also presents itself outwardly in how you treat your neighbor. And it's verse 14, actually, in 1 John 3, that sets the tone for this entire conversation. He says, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. It's our affection for each other. Brothers and sisters in Christ, brothers and sisters in humanity, whoever does not love abides in death. There are two words in the Greek language that describe death. And the one John's employing here is not merely a, a physical passing away, but a spiritual state of separation from God. You know that you've passed out of that death and into life. What's the external evidence of that? Well, it's loving the brothers. It's loving the brothers. If you don't love the brother, there are, that, that's a sign. That's a symptom, if you will. And so death is a penalty that we've earned, a spiritual state of separation from God. And in that state, in that sense, there are apparently plenty of people walking around the earth today, perfectly functioning healthy hearts, perfectly functioning healthy lungs, bringing in the oxygen, expelling the carbon dioxide, and they are walking dead men because of the evidence given that they do not love the brothers. And John tells us with great clarity the evidence of that new life, that the evidence of what Jesus called being born again is exactly that. It's, it's love for the brothers. And then he defines love. Now, why would he do that? I think there's a reason. I think it's the same reason that Paul defined love in Ephesians chapter 5 when he says of the marital relationship, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. I think the apostles knew that if they didn't fill in a Holy Spirit-inspired definition, we'd make up all this stuff on our own. All right? I will define what it means to love my wife. And, and interestingly enough, it, it'll be a very convenient definition for me. All right? Or as our culture says, love is love. But they don't define love. Have you noticed that? Love is love. What is love? I, I don't know. I don't know. Well, the fact of the matter is love is not love. God is love. And God gets to define love, and God gets to tell us what love looks like, and he also gets to tell us what the fake stuff looks like that we want to kind of make up for ourselves. God alone defines that. And in these verses, he says, this is how it will manifest itself if it's truly in your heart. It will show. If you love God, then you will also love each other. And if we love each other, John says there's going to be four evidences of that in our relationships 
with each other. And I want you to see these. Number one, love forgives. It forgives. Verse 11, for this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his, de- his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. That last line is a little bit puzzling because we have no access 2,000 years later, the particular context that John is addressing here, but it would appear there's been some kind of deep, hurtful offense. Maybe it was one brother or sister against another in the congregation. Maybe it was someone outside the church insulting publicly a brother or sister. Maybe the whole church felt some measure of this offense. We, we really don't know, but we do see how John responds. It's with a story that these readers would have been very, very familiar with from the beginning, and a story that you and I can find in Genesis chapter 4. It's a story of two brothers and one who actually grew in his hatred to the extent that he killed the other one. And and, and, and in a rage of jealousy, Jesus would later warn us in the Sermon on the Mount, you have heard that it was said of those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to the judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to the judgment. And then he'll go on to say later in that message, if you are at an altar together, you and your brother, you and your sister, and you realize there's division, there's an unreconciled relationship, you get up from the altar and you go fix that first. And I find it interesting that Jesus uses that analogy given the fact that the story of Cain and Abel starts at an altar. Two unreconciled people both making offerings to the Lord. Cain's actions betrayed his true nature and the way he was feeling about his brother the entire time and, frankly, about God as well. John says here in retrospect, he was of the evil one. So here's the real simple lesson. Don't be like Cain. Don't be like Cain. And listen, you don't have to murder. You don't have to pull a trigger. You don't have to throw a knife in order to be like Cain. Hollywood released a movie many years ago called Shutter Island. For those of you who don't, have not seen it and you don't like spoiler alerts, you may want to cover your ears for just a moment. Uh, but there's a great object lesson in that movie. Leonardo DiCaprio plays the main character. Starts out as a U.S. Marshal named Ted Daniels who's been invited into a, an insane asylum to investigate a missing patient. Fast forward to the end, and it actually turns out that Marshall Daniels is not Marshall Daniels. He's instead a patient inside the asylum whose name is Andrew. And Andrew's been in the asylum for roughly 10 years because he killed his wife in a a, a paranoid, delusional state. And so that's where they placed him. And the point of the movie, by the time you get to the end, is Marshall Daniels actually ended up being the monster that he was looking for. That's really the lesson of 1 John. You're looking for the monster out there somewhere. You're investigating out here. And you, you, you need to understand, as horrible as that story is in the earliest chapters of God's Word, right here, right now, in 2024, the point of that story is not to talk about how bad Cain was, but to make sure we don't become Cain. Make sure you're not Cain in that figure. Make sure of that. Because the world is going to hate you. The world is going to mischaracterize your faith. Sometimes even professing Christians are going to mischaracterize. They're going to slander. They're going to gossip. They're going to do. They're going to say horrible things about you. And the thing for you to do is make sure you never, ever, ever respond in a way that vindicates their claims. Don't ever do that. 
Who, who saw the movie about Jackie Robinson? came out several years ago. Phenomenal movie. And some of you, you probably remember, he, he was just horribly treated by the white members of, of the opposing team. He was horribly betrayed, oftentimes, by the white members of his own team. And there's a scene in that movie where he goes down in the tunnel and he just breaks a bat in frustration and he wants to go out and, and do what any of us would want to be do, want to do after we've been treated like that. He, we'd want to manhandle some of those people. And his manager says, if you do that, you're going to prove. They're going to go, look, look, see, we told you. We told you. And that's what John is telling his readers here. Don't act in a way that vindicates the lies that people are going to tell about you. He goes on in, 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 in verse 14 to say, if you have passed from death to life, you actually have the power to do this. Now notice, he didn't say it was going to be easy. He said, you have the power to do this. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever loves, whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Are you following this logical progression? Murderers don't have eternal life. You can have the heart of a murderer without pulling the trigger. And if you have the heart of a murderer, you abide in the very death that you will one day earn. If you're sick, it's going to show. Sometimes in horrible ways. But if you've been healed, it also shows. He says you love the brothers. And it, shouldn't it go without saying that the absolute lowest bar of love is refraining from killing somebody? Don't be like Cain. You say, okay, well, I haven't killed anybody. That's a start. That's a start. We need to get better from there because murder, if you never pull the trigger, it starts in the heart. Remember what Jesus said. All right? If you are angry with your brother, Unjust anger resides in the heart of anybody and everybody who has ever pulled a trigger or raised a knife or used any other kind of weapon. And that's what we're taught here. Make sure that you do not have the kind of heart that is the heart of a murderer. Well, well how is that? Well, a murderous heart is an unforgiving, unrelenting heart. So do you refuse to forgive? To forgive. Now, love, as I said in the beginning, has a definition. We're going to see that unfolded and defined for us here over the next several verses. Forgiveness has a definition as well. And so if some of you are wondering, well, what are you doing? Or maybe you've been in an abusive relationship or some kind of controlling kind of relationship and, and someone has accused you of being unforgiving because you wouldn't get back under that or, or whatever. Let, let's talk first about what forgiveness is not. Number one, forgiveness is not about how you feel. You don't ever have to have the warm fuzzies for that ever, other person ever again in order to forgive them because forgiveness is not about how you feel. Number two, it's not denial of what happened to you or the wrong you suffered. Stating those things is simply telling the truth. So to forgive is not to say, all right, well, just forget it. Just, just forget about that. Just forget. We, we have this view in the West of, well, forgive and forget. Well, well, not, no, no. That's not what forgiveness is. Number three, it's not enabling further wrong to you. It's not continuing to go back and to allow a person who really doesn't repent. They say, I'm sorry, but they just keep doing the same thing over and over again. And then they expect you 
to be the person to keep coming back and taking it, that's not forgiveness. That's gaslighting on the part of the other person. Okay, so can you forgive someone and not go back and continue to take their abuse and be their doormat? Absolutely. You can forgive somebody. Forgiveness is not, number four, forgetting. It's not trusting. It's not reconciling, because it takes two to reconcile, one to forgive. Here's what forgiveness is. Number one, identifying the wrong done to you. You got to name it. And in most cases, you got to be pretty specific about it. Because otherwise, it's not an issue of you being hurt. It's an issue of you being bitter. I've talked to people before, and they don't like this person or that person. There's this long history. And, and I've had them, especially if, if they're older adults in their 70s, 80s, and they, they may have even forgotten. They're like, you know what? I don't even remember what he did. I just don't like him. Well, that's not hurt. That's bitterness. That's, you, you held that inside so long, you refused to forgive for so long, it took root in your soul, and you don't even know why it's there anymore. You're keeping the thing around like a pet. And, and you're, it's not helping you. So you've got to identify, this is what I'm angry about. This is what hurt me. You've got to get some help doing that. Number two, you need to determine what you would be rightfully owed if they made things right with you. And then number three, whatever is in number two, you cancel that. That's what forgiveness is. That is all that forgiveness is. It's not going back and being abused. It's not continuing to take a bunch of nonsense from people and putting up with their crap. It's not about, it's about saying, I'm going to let this go. It doesn't even mean that there won't be justice that needs to be pursued by a local church and a discipline process, by a court of law, if it involves legal things. What it means is, in my heart, I'm letting this go. And I'm doing it for my own good because when I refuse to forgive, it's literally like drinking poison and waiting on the other person to die. It is absolutely ridiculous. And love will empower you to do that. The love of God empowers you to do that. A lack of willingness to do that is, again, what Scripture calls the root of bitterness. Bitterness will lead you not to being justly angry but being unjustly angry. That unjust anger will lead to hatred. And at that point, you don't have to stab or shoot anybody. You are walking around with the heart of a murderer. That's what's happening. And the love John speaks of here that emerges from this new life that God has given all of us empowers you and me to forgive. So love forgives. Number two, love takes action. He goes on in verse 16 to say, by this we know love. By this we know. Love is love. Nope, that's not what God, God says, I define love. And let me me tell you, not just how to define it according to Webster's, but what it looks like in real life. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. We're in this together. That's almost a a foxhole-like picture, isn't it? We're together. If anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him. That's actually a rather sanitized translation. The Greek says closes his entrails. Okay? Like, if, you, if your disposition, it lit, I didn't say this, God's word said it, if your disposition towards somebody you can't belong get, get along with is one of constipation, That's a sign of a lack of love. Don't you wish you could read Greek? Awesome. 
If you close your heart, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. This isn't about what you say. It's about what you do and whether or not what you do stands in the truth. And it rests on the foundation of a story of our creator who gave everything, sacrificed everything, so that you and I can have eternal life. So if we follow that God, our actions will reflect that, that same love in our relationship to others. But then really quickly, John gets very practical. Because it's one thing to say, oh yeah, I would die. I mean, that's not really hard, is it? In an air-conditioned building, sitting on padded seats, in an atmosphere of the greatest amount of religious freedom the world has ever seen in all of human history, to say, yeah, I would die for you guys. That's just words. That's all that is. But most of us are never going to be asked to sacrifice our life for another person. Most of us aren't. Jesus says there's no greater love than this, but, but how do you know that you possess that kind of love when you don't actually need to act on it? How do you know you possess that kind of love? See, what John is doing here is the same thing Paul is doing in Ephesians when he writes to people like me who are married, and he says to the husbands, love your wives, and then he defines it, as Christ loved the church, and gave himself up for her. Well, there you go again. No greater love. Lay down your life. Most of us say, oh, of course, I would die for her. I mean, if there's a noise in the middle of the night, I'm not going to hand her the nine millimeter and tell her to go downstairs. And, and while she's at it, bring me back a, back a piece of chicken, maybe. Like, no, I wouldn't do that. I would never do anything like that. Yeah, that's not really what John has in mind here. And it's not even what Paul has in mind because very few husbands actually have to physically die for their wives, but they do have to give their lives in a very different way. And what does it say of me if I repeatedly say in that middle of the night scenario, of course I would go downstairs, of course I would give up my own life for my wife and children, but, but how can anybody believe that if I never listen to her, if I never spend time with her, if I never consider her feelings, if I never do the things that I should do in the day-to-day, if I start seeing being married to her as a burden, if I talk junk about her when I'm with the guys, then don't tell me you'd give, me, you'd give your life for her. It's not true. It's not true. Of course I would. You won't even help her change a diaper, dude. Come on. Yeah, well, it's, it's nasty. I know it's nasty. I did my share of gagging when our kids were little. Go. It won't hurt you to gag. Help that woman change a diaper. Amen, ladies? Oh, there you go. All the guys are like, oh, me. If I'm not going to be willing to do, same thing is true in your church family, guys. If I'm not willing to open my heart to another, love is not a feeling. Love is not words. Love is an action. It doesn't just join in when everything is fun and happy and then manifest in conspicuous absence when there's a need. It doesn't claim the promises of a faith and then refuse to take up the responsibilities of that faith. Like people I see on social media that are like, I can do all things through Christ. You won't even come to church when it rains. Not, 
I love you, but not everything about the Christian life is fun. Sometimes you've got a brother and sister in your small group or in a ministry group that you help with, or maybe, maybe even one of our staff that's need. Now, that may, might not be monetary. Our staff get paid. They shouldn't be asking you for money, okay? But they might, ha- they might need emotional support. There may be somebody in this congregation that needs prayer, that needs encouragement, maybe just needs presence, somebody to sit with them. And for those of you looking at me, I love you all to death, but I can't sit with 900 people. It, the body of Christ has to do that. The body has to minister to itself. And, and when that opportunity arises and you close off your heart, you shut yourself off, which is just a metaphor for saying you refuse to make yourself vulnerable with them, which is the very essence of what it means to have compassion on another. I'm going to suffer with you in this because I love you. And because Jesus loves me, loved me so much, in fact, that he suffered in a way that I will never know suffering. So I am happy to step into this suffering with you. John's rhetorical question is, how can the self-sacrificing love of Jesus reside in someone who is always closing themselves off from that kind of need? Love, not just, it doesn't just forgive, it takes action. And in taking that action, It assures us. John goes on in verse 19. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. In other words, when you behave in a loving, self-sacrificing way toward each other, John says that's the external expression of the truth that God has placed within you. Toward the end of this letter, we're going to come across chapter 5, verse 13, where he's going to remind us, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. Not guess, not wonder, not worry about. You'll know. You'll know where you're going when you die. You will know the status of your relationship with God. And here's how you know if the love externally demonstrated from you reflects the regenerative, redemptive love of God that Christ has placed within you. And then comes an admission. Because even for those of us for whom that is true, we don't always get this right, do we? Because we have the spirit of Jesus living in us, but here's a clue, we are not Jesus. And so sometimes we blow it. Sometimes we, you may be thinking now, there have been times when I've walked away from a need. There have been times when, when I have served, but I've done it with a resentful attitude. I come in here grumpy about it. There have been times when I, I get that, that hero, you know, victimized hero effect where I just, I tell everybody I don't need any help and then I get mad because nobody helped me. You got to tell us, folks. You got to tell us. What do we make of that? Because can, can saved people on their way to heaven be grumpy? Yes. Yeah. Some of y'all are looking at me going, I've seen it in you. And I don't think you're going to hell, Pastor. No, I don't think I am either. I've seen it in some of you. Can we be? So, so what do we make of that? What do we make of that? So I want you to see some hope here in verse 20. Whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart. And he knows everything. That's a description, not made clear just yet, it will be in a few more verses, but of Holy Spirit conviction. When you walk away from an issue and you go, man, I shouldn't have said that, or I shouldn't have said it in that way, 
or I shouldn't have ignored that, or I shouldn't have had that attitude about it, I shouldn't have minimized that, I shouldn't have treated that like it wasn't important. My heart, which is another metaphor for the seat of my thoughts, will, and decisions, reveals that there's something that needs to be healed in me. That's a gift from God. That is a gift from God. Our, our staff are going through uh, a study called Emotionally Healthy Spirituality starting this coming week. My great hope is that there will be a plan by the time we get the, to, to the fall to kind of unfold that to our small groups and allow you. It, let me, that's all emotionally healthy. Well, that's not all it is, but that's really the heart of what it is, is the recognition that when I have gone astray, when I have done something wrong, when I have reacted or acted in an unloving way to a brother and sister in Christ, when I can see the hurt that I have caused another, the Holy Spirit comes into my life, and he, and this is the difference between the Holy Spirit and the devil. The devil just talks about how horrible you are and how just unredemptive you are, irredeemable you are. The Holy Spirit doesn't look at you. He, he looks at that. Satan says, you're stupid. The Holy Spirit says, that thing you did was stupid. You see the difference? Right? And, and, and you have the capacity emotionally and spiritually to receive that because you know when my heart fails, there is one who is greater than my heart. And he's not just going to point out the things that are wrong. He's going to offer healing. He's going to offer healing. Some of you have had that experience at, at your local physician's office. You go in and something showed up on the blood panel or something you didn't expect and, and you sit in front of that doctor and he or she looks at you and tells you very specifically what's wrong with you and maybe it scares you it's not terminal it's not chronic but it's a problem you have this disease you have this bacteria you have this virus you have it but then right on the heels of that as long as they can actually do something about it sometimes diseases are terminal Sometimes they are chronic, but oftentimes they'll, they'll find what's wrong with you and, and what comes next in that doctor's office. Good news, right? You, you can't get the good news without the bad. I mean, what good would it do for a doctor to look at you and go, hey, I have a cure if you just go, for what? I ain't got nothing wrong with me. They first have to tell you very specifically, this is what's going to happen, okay? This is what's wrong, and then right on the heels of that, what do they do? Here's the medication. Here's the procedure. Here's the Oh, and by the way, I know you're not a physician. I know you've otherwise lived a healthy life, and this is kind of making you nervous because you're having to take this pill you didn't have to take before, or I'm going to have to cut you open and do this or do that, and that's not something you've never experienced before. But let me tell you, I've been practicing medicine for 15 years, 20 years. I run these patients through like a dead gum McDonald's drive through We're going to get you healed. Trust me. Don't be afraid to give control over to me and let me treat you and do what you need. And for those of us who have a lick of sense, we just let them do it. Right. When conviction comes and your actions and dispositions are condemned, you got to be thankful for that. Because the next words from the Holy Spirit are, this is how you get healed. This is how you, you, you don't have to hold on that forever. This is how you get healed. He goes on, verse 21, Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. 
So the Holy Spirit's conviction heals, brings with it clear conscience, brings with it the ability to obey, brings, brings with it the ability spiritually to climb those, those stairs that absolutely took your breath away when you were trying to do it in your sin. That's what John is teaching us. The further we dive into this ancient letter, the more clear John's message becomes, the more it's contrasted with the heretical teaching that he was confronting. Just a little review for those of you who haven't been here. Gnosticism was the heresy that had infiltrated this church. It had told people, my day-to-day has absolutely nothing to do with my spiritual walk. It has also convinced them that true knowledge of God is only uh, accessible to elite few. You've got to get it through us. And those two lies had left this church completely without assurance. Completely without assurance. Maybe that's you today. You know, you spent your whole life even coming to church wondering, am I really okay with God? That prayer I prayed, did I say it right? Did I have it with enough sincerity? I've got a friend of mine that used to say, man, I, I grew up in a revivalist tradition and almost every week I was praying, God, forgive me of my sins. Jesus saved me because I just didn't know if last week I did it good enough. That's not assurance. That's not assurance. You know, am I okay? Am I going to have to live my whole life wondering what happens to me when I die? Are those other religious traditions right when they tell me that at the end of the, the, the age, at the judgment seat, I'm going to have my good deeds and my dad, bad deeds weighed, and I'm never going to know really until that day whether one outweighs the other, and if those scales tip in the wrong direction, I'm really in trouble, and you've been tormented by that your whole life. John is writing to people just like you, and he's telling you, you can know whether you have passed from death to life. And it's not about something you did. It's not about that. Whether you have been born again. How many of you had control over everything the day of your birth? Anybody? All right. There's a reason Jesus uses that metaphor. And then follows it up with the wind blows where's, where's, where it will. You, you, you just give yourself over. You bow before the infinite, sovereign, gracious wisdom of God. And you will pass from death to life. He's right. John's right. And it's still true today. Right now, you can know that. Forgiveness takes action. It, is, it assures us. Here's the last thing that love's going to do. It produces obedience. Verse 23. And this is the commandment that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another. Just as he commanded us, whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this, we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. Now, let me say again, just for posterity's sake, I've said this over and over, John is not saying that you become a Christian by obeying God's commandments. In fact, elsewhere in the New Testament, we're confronted with the hard, cold reality that we're incapable of doing that. So that's not how you come to know, okay? But you can't do this in your own strength. You think, think about my friend that I mentioned in the early part of this message. If, if his physician had said, you've got blockages, you've got a bad heart, and then proceeded to lecture him about all the things he'd done in his past, maybe eating too much red meat or whatever, and then you, you shouldn't have done that, and then ended that condemnation with a, now go home and figure out what to do about your heart. What kind of physician is that? No, not, no, no real doctor says that. They say, this is what's going on. This is what could have caused it. Now here's what I'm going to do. 
to help you get better. And when I do, this is going to be the result. That's how it goes in in the doctor's office. Folks, that's what God is telling us here through the words of the apostle. And we know it because verse 24 makes the first explicit mention of the Holy Spirit. He will do this work. You just simply have to ask him. He will do this. He will work in your heart. Are you separated from God by your sin? Are you a believer that has failed him? The invitation here is to come with abandon and boldness into the office of the great physician. There's no waiting room. There's no insurance complications. And there's no charge. And there is guaranteed healing every single time. That's what he's calling you to. He's never going to judge you and demand that you operate on yourself. That's ridiculous enough in the real world. About once a year, I go in, I get this horrible head cold. Feels like my head's filling with cement. And I got a 16-pound bowling ball just sort of doing this. And I know I'm going to have to get something to treat that. I've never seen, never one single time had that physician look back at me and go, why'd you come in here like that? Why are you doing all that coughing? And stop that sneezing. You're going to get that on me. That's not how they do it. That's not how they do it. I've never known anybody that I've prayed with or pastor that said, yeah, I went to the doctor and they told me I need to fix my own heart. Like, what do you want me to do? Go home, go in the kitchen, get a steak knife? What do you want me to do? You can't do it. Spiritually, you are incompetent to get where you need to be, but there's a God who will heal you and he will make you obedient. And God Brothers and sisters, he's been making this promise and keeping it since the days of Jeremiah when he said, I will put my law within them. Even Israel couldn't do this. My law will be within them. I will write it on their hearts. They will be my God. They, I shall be their people. The love God places in us will show. And it shows in our obedience in loving each other, loving our neighbors. That, that, that kind of love forgives takes action, provides assurance, produces obedience. Back in May of 1914, the Empress of Ireland Ireland was a ship that that went went down in some really, really deep waters off the Atlantic. And and among the passengers on board were 130 officers of this group called the Salvation Army, this group that you see every Christmas out in front of every Walmart in America collecting money, and they have fed meals and helped more hurting people and, and just done this, this tremendous amount of work over about the last century or so. When rescuers finally arrived to the scene, they found 109 dead bodies that belonged to those officers. And none of them were wearing a life vest. None of them. And the few survivors that were left told the rescuers the story that once these Salvation Army officers realized that there weren't going to be enough vests, they immediately and without thought, they didn't even consider it, they just immediately started unbuckling, taking their own vests off and strapping them on other people, starting with children and then women and then other men, saying to every single one of them that they strapped on that vest, I can die better than you. Now, where does that spirit come from? Where's that spirit come from? William Booth, who founded the Salvation Army months before that incident happened, had sent a telegram to every office of the Salvation Army in the world, one word, one word, others. 
And the survivors told the rescuers that as that ship was going down, those officers were on board shouting to each other over and over again, others, others. Guys, that's the, that's the love that Christ had when he came for us. It's the love the Holy Spirit promises to inject in our souls and give to us. That's the love that can change the world. No greater love than to lay down your life for others. No better acid test of the love that resides in you than how you treat each other, how you treat your family, how you treat your neighbors, how you treat your church family, even in the most mundane of ways. And there's only one way to possess that kind of love. You've got to pass from death unto life, and you can only get that in one place, from a man named Jesus of Nazareth. He gave his life for you. He has risen from the dead. He invites you this morning to turn away from that old life, that old way of thinking, that old way of trusting. Embrace him with everything you have because, and, and he's got receipts. He was the first to do the thing that he's calling us to do, to give everything that he had for you and for me. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I pray for not yet believers in this room who wonder about their state before you. Lord, we pray that your Holy Spirit would confirm in them on this very day that they have eternal life and that they would come and declare that new relationship in Christ. We pray for those who are believers who struggle with unforgiveness, who struggle with all these sort of syrupy understandings of love both outside and frankly inside the church and we pray father that that you would empower all of us today with your spirit to live in exactly the way that this old apostle is calling us to live lord you you are good to us because you have revealed these things to us because you tell us the truth and then you give us hope and so father fill fill everyone in this room with that hope by whatever means possible. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hi, everybody. Pastor Joel here, and I am so glad you stopped by. I pray this podcast helps you in your walk with God. And if you're listening with questions about faith of any sort, God is not afraid of those questions, and neither are we. Join us any Sunday morning at 9 o'clock or 11 o'clock in the morning. If you're new to our area and looking for a church home, I hope we'll see you soon and have the opportunity to welcome you properly and personally through our doors. And if you live in the tri-state area, but you're already a part of one of the other phenomenal church families here, I pray this podcast has been a great addition to the primary teaching you already received from your local pastor and that you've been better equipped to serve your own church family. So let's all go make Jesus famous this week. Share his love every chance you get until we meet again. And God bless you.